Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marcellaro, and this week my guest is the managing editor of Tidbits, Josh Centers. Josh, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, this is your fifth appearance. I always love having you on the show. It's always so much fun to talk to you about Apple stuff. You are the managing editor of Tidbits. That's at tidbits.com, as well as the author of Take Control of Apple TV, the co-author of Take Control of Preview, and you've just published uh, your latest new book, Take Control of iOS 13 and iPad OS 13. Cool. Yes, sir. Can't wait to talk to you about that. But first, I just read an enormously interesting article at Tidbits by you about ellipses. And it sounds pretty geeky, but it's really fascinating. The article is at tidbits.com, and it's near the top right now. Apple's inconsistent ellipsis icons inspire user confusion. And it's a rather long and detailed article, but it's, it's just rich and it's full of good stuff. Can you walk us through that? Sure. Uh, so I was documenting the Apple card, and uh, I noticed I kept typing the same thing over and over and over again. I kept saying, okay, tap the ellipsis button, tap the ellipsis button, to, because uh, in Wallet, uh, and this isn't just the Apple card, this is for any card that you manage, there's an ellipsis button that you have to tap to see the card's settings. And so it was just absolutely driving me nuts, and it made me start realizing uh, how many ellipses buttons were were in these interfaces? And, and I started thinking back to uh, the book I'd been working on. And sure enough, it's like just ellipsis button, ellipsis button, ellipsis button. And even in some cases, um, and, I, and I was painfully aware of it because I had to replace a lot of those icons so, with ellipsis buttons. And so I was like, this, this is driving me nuts. And, and this is confusing because this icon means nothing. Um, or too many yeah, things. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I had someone point out, and I knew someone would, well, it obviously means more. Okay, yes, but more what? And, you know, it took me it took me a bit to sell uh, Adam Inks, my publisher, tidbits on the idea. But well, like, once he started seeing it, too, you, you can't unsee it. And, and not just that it does so many different things, but it appears in so many different contexts and doesn't uh, provide a consistent action. You know, for instance, in some contexts, it brings up a share sheet. Uh, in some contexts, it'll bring up a totally different screen. Uh, sometimes it'll, it'll bring up a, um, uh, I forget the term, one well, of those little um, panels that pops up at the bottom of the screen. Um, and then uh, Adam stumbled across uh, what I thought was the most ridiculous example of all, if you go to iTunes and you browse your music collection by artist, uh, if you hover your, your mouse button over the the track name, you actually get three ellipsis buttons in a row. There's one for the artist, there's one for the album, and then there's one for the uh, for the song name. Now, in fairness, at least it does a pretty consistent thing. It basically just replicates the uh, the contextual menu, the right click or control click menu. But uh, yeah, and and part of the reason that the well, the re- really the main reason the article was so long, I actually had a commenter say like, "Well, this is interesting, but it's not that interesting." I was like, "Well, look, <laughs> yes, it is." <laughs> to make the argument, I had to provide all these examples, and I That's could, right. you know, and t- at tidbits, I don't know, maybe other places do this, but at tidbits, you know, we can't just dump a bunch of screenshots without any context or any discussion of what you're looking at. And so that's why the article turned out to be so infernally long and, and took me almost a month to write. 
Um, but uh, a month. Yeah, so a month. Yeah, it took, it took about three weeks from conception uh, till we finally got published. Well, you know, we want to be very thorough in the editing because any time you say something outrageous like uh, Apple failed at design, and then you top it with, uh, and this is near the the end of the article where Google did it better. Uh, anytime you say something that bold, uh, <laughs> you really want to, you know, dot your P's and Q's. And so we, we had, you know, a lot of, uh, different editing passes. We had, uh, Michael Cohen and Glenn Fleischman both look over it. Glenn, of course, is a huge, uh, typography nerd. So he was able to add a little, a little extra insight to all that. But, you know, I've, I've gotten mostly good comments on it. I just received a message from a guy I graduated high school with who's a designer now, and he said, man, that article was great. I'm going to send it to all my designer friends. And so that that was a high, uh, that was some high praise. Did you send it to uh, Apple? I mean, did you make Apple aware of it? <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> hopefully they're aware of it. I, I do know that there are Apple employees that read tidbits. Um, I do know, I, I'm not saying our articles cause change, but there, there have been a number of times where we complain about something publicly and it gets fixed. Now, whether it's because of our article specifically or because, uh, you know, just people are paying attention to it or maybe tidbits readers are filing, you know, feedback reports. And I, I couldn't say, but you know, I do know that a lot of times, uh, you know, publishing stuff in tidbits sooner or later leads to, you know, the squeaky wheel getting the grease. Um, well, this and is deeply hewn into iOS 13. It would be hard to fix it easily, I think. Yeah, they need to think up some better icons. Well, and, and here's here's an example that's absolutely maddening. The Shortcuts app in iOS 12, uh, when reviewing a shortcut, there is a little icon that clearly means settings for that shortcut. And I love this icon. It's too... Um, ovals representing um, uh, the setting switches in iOS and, and one uh, is off and it has a little blue dot to the left and the other one is on and it's the, the entire oval uh, is blue and there's a little uh, gray dot to the right and it's such a great icon because if you're familiar at all with the conventions of iOS, like, oh yeah, that's settings that's a settings button and then in iOS 13, they replaced it with an ellipsis button that means nothing. They, they replaced a perfectly good icon with, with a meaningless icon. And as I point out in the article, they, they could replace every one of these ellipsis icons with Claris the dog cow. And <laughs> yeah, that was cool. <laughs> or a clothes iron or, or a little car or, or a smiley face and would have just as much meaning. Well, let me ask it, you a tough question. Sure. Um, the the ellipsis suggests that there's more to do. Is it absolutely necessary that you have a mind of what you want to do next before you start exploring the more button? I mean, you might get into a mode where you say, well, there's something else I need to do. Maybe it's in the more, maybe it's in the ellipse button. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, someone commented on the article who, who apparently actually knows something about design, and he said, uh, the industry term for these are what they call overflow buttons. And so if it's something you can't cram on screen, you, you hide it behind a menu on, on this button. And, you know, and there is a place for that. Absolutely. 
you know, Google uses these in their material design apps. Uh, you can see examples. Well, I have examples in the article. But if you, you open the Gmail app in iOS, Google Maps, Google Docs, uh, YouTube even, uh, you know, they, they have these. And it isn't the best thing in the world, no, but it's, it's just sort of a reality of a mobile-first app design. And so... Um, you need things like that, but there's two things that, that need to happen. A, uh, the icons could be better, or, or even if they just stick to the ellipses uh, like Google does, then it should be a consistent action. And I give examples of this in Google's apps. Like if you um, you tap the three little buttons, and it turns out those are either called, I think the horizontal ones are called meatballs, and the vertical ones are called kebabs. <laughs> Actually, it's like the German word for kebab. It's, it's not ke- or maybe kebab, maybe. Anyway, um, but the point is you tap that button in Gmail and you get a consistent little menu pop up from the bottom of the screen. Now, it's not 100% consistent. You know, I do point out some things in the article where it's not always, but it's a lot more consistent than Apple's implementation. And so I think in this case, Google actually did a better job. Another thing also, and I'm personally a fan of material design, or at least the ethos behind it, because I love that Google has, you know, Google identified a problem. Uh, most Android apps are ugly, and so they created an open source design language. They they released it to everybody. You can use the, the color schemes. You can use the fonts. You, you know, they give you all the guidelines. They give you everything you need to make a website or an app that looks like uh, that matches the material design guidelines. If you want to, uh, and I think that's great. I think you know, if I wish more people took advantage of it, but uh, you know, I do think that helps the overall design world a lot. You know, as opposed to people trying to copy Apple's style to varying degrees of success, and Apple's getting a little better on this uh they're now providing to developers a system called um so before developers all had to draw their own icons which is why every app seems to have a different share icon uh for instance that's one i've always noticed well apple now provides a library of standard icons there's two problems with this though first well actually three problems first of all you're not allowed to use them outside of iOS apps like it's very restricted in what you, you can use them with. Secondly, they're not they're actually not actually offered as icons. It's a typeface that's exclusive to Apple's new operating system. So that's one of their ways of restricting the usage. And thirdly, and I elaborate on this in the article, uh, the icon names are meaningless. Like uh, I'm looking here, uh, there's ellipsis ellipsis dot circle ellipsis dot circle dot fill. Uh, ellipsis.bubble.fill. It tells you nothing about what it's supposed to be. So developers don't have a clue. Then if you look at, say, uh, what Google provides in material design, you have uh, the, the meatballs is called more horizontal. The, the kebabs are called more vert or more vertical. So, and then uh, it's, it's especially, uh, it's a lot more obvious if you look at the settings icons because you have like power settings, settings. It's not just like gear. You know, it's not just telling you what it is. It's telling you what it should be. Um, and what's, what's aggravating about that is that Apple has very specific guidelines for uh, the icons it wants to refer only to its own features. And they will tell you very clearly, this pencil icon 
means markup. Do not use it for anything else. So it's not as if Apple can't do this or doesn't have the resources for it. They just, for whatever reason, choose not to. One of the interesting things I, I found in the article was the use of the ellipsis in the message app for the other person's typing on the other end. That maybe isn't such a bad thing in itself because it suggests an unfinished thought, according to Wikipedia, in which you quote. But on the other hand, multiple use of the same icon is a road to perdition. Well, the um, the use in iMessage, I think, is perfectly fine. Um, and it's not necessarily a terrible thing to use it for overflow, uh, but it needs a little more consistency. Um, I mean, I, I do think, but now I do think Apple could come up with a much better solution. And there are some cases, like for instance, the Slack app. Uh, I, I show an example there where there's a, an ellipsis button that brings up a single item that they could just fit on the screen. Um, and I realize I'm being kind of uh, kind of uh, pedantic here, you know, and it probably didn't deserve probably, did, probably deserve 2,500 words. But here's here's the <laughs> yeah, bottom line. It did. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. The, the bottom line, though, is that, uh, you know, yeah, this stuff doesn't just make it unusable, right? It's not like, you know, you're booting into some obscure uh, window manager in Linux or something. But it, it adds confusion and, and thus friction to the user interface. And, again, it doesn't make things unusable, but it just makes things a little confusing. You feel disoriented uh, dealing with the and 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 because I, I, I feel disoriented and a little confused, and I spend every summer documenting every virtual square inch of the new iOS, and I've been doing that since iOS eight, and I just did a book on iOS thirteen, so you know you do the math there, and, and even I'm a little confused. So this is just you know you it's bring a small up that thing. element of trust too, when things happen in different ways with mm-hmm. the same icon. You sort of feel a little detached from the operating system, like you don't really understand what's happening, in, and you're you're annoyed that there's inconsistent behavior and there's this lack of trust in the consistency of the system and lacking confidence, self confidence that you understand what you're doing, right? Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. Um, well, you know, like uh, one icon people love to hammer on, and for good reason, is that a lot of applications still use a floppy disk icon to save files. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you what's hilarious <laughs> is that a lo- um, apparently in Japan, younger kids in Japan think that's a vending machine because the vending machines in Japan are a lot wider than in the United States. And so that floppy icon, they've never seen a floppy in their life. Floppies haven't been common for at least 15 years, probably a lot longer. They think it's a vending machine. Like, why, why am I clicking a vending machine to save? Um which is hilarious to me. But at the very least, though, when you see that vending machine or floppy disk, you know that clicking it will save. And it, I'm not I'm mm. not saying they shouldn't get rid of that icon. But I do think that, you know, I will take a, a puzzling icon that behaves consistently maybe over um, a an offensive icon that does random things. You mentioned there's one already in existence. There's an ISO standard for the little eye with a circle around it. Mm-hmm. that at least could be used in appropriate cases to distinguish between what's happening there and what's happening with an ellipsis, maybe. You, you know what they should use is an asterisk, which, of course, in Unix terms, is a wild card. And so, <laughs> at least... <laughs> I, and you know what? That actually could work. 
uh, Roku does that because uh, Roku has the little asterisks on a button on the remotes, and that always brings up some. It's usually like a little menu, but it's like a you know somewhat kind of random button. So I mean that that might actually be a little better. I mean it's still lazy design, but you know may, maybe a, a little more clear. All right, well we got to move on. I've been chatting with uh, Josh Centers about his article tidbits called "Less Is More." Apple's inconsistent ellipsis icons inspire user confusion. Uh, next, in the second half of the show, I want to talk to Josh about iPad OS and some home automation issues. But first, we have to take a commercial break. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. I'm chatting with Tidbits Managing Editor Josh Sanders. So, Josh, I want to run something by you. Um, At the Mac Observer, we do news every day, and we do a news podcast every day. I'm not always on it, but there's, there's always a horror story about something going on with Internet of Things, with home automation, uh, the business with the ring doorbell and uh, the police, this business of spyware, lack of security. I know you're an expert on home automation. You wrote a took Take Control book on it, I think, right? Yeah, I wrote Take Control of Apple Home Automation, which, uh, just to be clear, is is very strictly focused on HomeKit and uh, for you know uh, for, for uh, several very good reasons. Uh, one of those is that uh, I'm not going to say HomeKit security is perfect. There actually was an exploit found uh, and patched not long uh, around the time the book came out. So you know that's one thing I like about HomeKit. But yeah, I'm, uh, home automation definitely has a lot of uh, pitfalls, and uh, Internet of Things more broadly does. Uh, the Ring thing is disturbing. Uh, it, you know, like on one hand, you know I've seen news stories just locally where people have caught like there was an escaped convict and he was these people had a fridge on their back porch as one does in Tennessee and and the guy was was raiding their fridge and they caught it on their ring and they were able to apprehend this guy now this wasn't part I don't think of the police integration program this was just uh, a homeowner who caught this guy on their camera and called the cops. Um, so, you know, when, when you can use these devices um, to, uh, you know, do things like that of your own volition, then that's empowering, right? Um, you know, those people are probably lifelong fans of Ring now because they had an escaped convict hang, hang, hanging around at their house, uh, stealing their food, and Ring... Uh, I mean, it could have gotten something bad could have happened, right? Uh, but on the other hand, you have this program 
that I find disturbing where Ring, which is an Amazon subsidiary, uh, Ring will give police departments free equipment like Ring cameras if they get people to install this. Uh, it's like Ring neighborhood. It's sort of similar, I think, to Nextdoor, where people, uh, for lack of a better phrase, snitch on their neighbors. And, um, yeah, I just I find that very disturbing. First of all, uh, and, and, and part of this program is that they require the police departments to have dedicated officers uh, to operate these programs. And so you have policemen, uh, police officers acting basically as PR for ring. Um, and I'm sure this isn't the first uh, program of its kind ever, but I do find it disturbing because uh, you could very easily read it as Amazon building a surveillance network. And I'm not sure that's an inaccurate description. Now, there are some privacy controls in this thing. Um, but one thing that police can do, um, one of the things they get in exchange for participating in this program is they get and they have to do this stuff to get access to this. They get access to uh, uh, Ring's backdoor systems. Now they can't just go looking at whatever, but they can see. Uh, they can requ- they can more easily request information from people's Ring cameras. They can see a general location of where all the Ring cameras are. Um, tools that, of course, are extremely useful to law enforcement. Safe, you know, they're trying to find an escaped convict. But, uh, you know, have some uh, potentially very bad privacy implications, uh, you know, not to mention the broader philosophical argument about police states and so forth. Um, And, of course, there's a lot of these Internet of Things devices that leak information everywhere. And this has gotten to the point of absurdity. I mean, even like, you know, for instance, just to change the subject ever so slightly. Uh, Firefox, which just came out with a new version, um, they uh, uh, they've put all sorts of telemetry in in Firefox, and it's funny because they advertise Firefox as the privacy focused browser, right? But they include all this telemetry, where by uh, default, the second you open up Firefox, there is this guy uh, I can't remember his exact Twitter handle, but he works for Brave, which is a competing browser. Uh, Samson something you probably look it up with that but um, he he did this he's been doing these tests where he opens a browser and he uses a, a, a packet sniffer and he just lets and it's a fresh install of a browser and he lets it just sit there for a few minutes like five minutes hmm. and sees what it does and he said out of all of them Firefox was probably the noisiest it starts contacting Google and contacting Mozilla and contacting all these and pinging all these different places and sending information it, you know and that and you can turn that all that stuff off um, which you you can't really do with Google Chrome Google Chrome contacts a lot of stuff too and there's not much you can do about it uh, other than install ungoogled chromium which is a fork because the base of Chrome is open source right but I don't want to get too far into that rabbit hole but just my point being that uh, everything's a botnet these days. Like, like there's all this stuff that just leaks your information just everywhere. Yeah, it seems to me like no matter what service is offered, there is the first there was a concept on the whiteboard where this massive infrastructure in my mind is being built, and there's communications set up, and there's database set up, and there's surveillance set up, and there's monetization set up, and there's the selling of the data set up, and then all of a sudden. 
you see a little bit piece of that carved out as a public service or for paid service. And all we see is that hoopla about the specific divulged service that's exposed to us. And we think, oh, that's all there is to it. No, there's not. There's a whole infrastructure behind whatever service is offered to you, whether it's an app or whether it's a service you pay for on the, on the Internet. And that, and that is, seems to be pervasive to me, and it's, it's cooking its way through home automation as well, it seems. Yeah, it's, it's something I've become increasingly uh, concerned with, and I'm hoping to uh, get my hands on those new Raspberry Pis and uh, use that to block some of this stuff. They, they have a software package called Pihole, which is mostly aimed at ad blocking, uh, but you know, I'm sure I could you know block a lot of other stuff with it too. Um, yeah, it's it's just very disturbing. Uh, you know, you want to talk about the you know maybe home automation isn't taking off that much, um, and that's definitely one reason. There's not a lot of trust in the entire space. I think Apple has tried to foster trust with its HomeKit program, but I don't think they've done a great job of messaging. Um, and, and I'm not sure even if they did a great job, I'm not sure if people would trust them because you know, Apple, you know, they had their uh, foible with Siri recently. And so I think it's perfectly fair to question just how serious Apple is about, you know, the, their privacy stance, just like with Mozilla. Uh, and Firefox, they say, oh, Firefox is the privacy-focused browser, but it by default it sends your personal information all over the place. We haven't, um, you haven't gotten yet to the point where there's the public consciousness that says, if it isn't using Apple's HomeKit, then I can't trust it. It's like it doesn't have the good housekeeping seal of approval or it doesn't have the underwriter's lab label. There's, there isn't that mentality in the culture. People go out and see something cool like Home. Uh, security cameras and they just go grab it off Amazon and set it up without a mind towards anything else except what on the surface it does. And there isn't that notion that, you know, I, I need to be in the Apple infrastructure like there is with the phone. A lot of people wouldn't think about using something other than an iPhone because of its focus on security and privacy and the secure enclave within it and the way it protects you. But in the home automation, Apple hasn't made the case that if your home automation system isn't using our technology and our infrastructure, you are on your own and you are at risk. Mm-hmm. That 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 meme isn't out there yet, and I don't know if it ever will be. Well, and one thing that works against HomeKit is that all the HomeKit accessories are a lot more expensive than alternatives on the market. Here's an interesting mm. thing. Um, you, you know, the home automation book didn't sell great. You know, it's I mean, it's fine. It was a uh, sponsored by Elgato, so I mean, I, I did great on it, but it wasn't a big seller. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. Whenever Take Control has a sale, and you can get this book for like five dollars or so, it flies off the shelves. People have an interest in it, but they don't they don't want to spend a lot on it. They they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're they don't quite know what to think. Like I'll put a, I'll put five bucks on it. I won't put fifteen on it. Um, maybe I'm they not, feel like I, they need to learn something about home automation, but not necessarily get their feet wet. Yeah, they, they, they don't want to make it a big investment. And so that's a problem when uh, – but now here's the funny thing. So whenever we, uh, I post an article about the Wise Cam, which uh, this company, Wise, they sell rebranded Chinese cameras for $20, uh, $20 for the basic model, $30 
for a, a nice pan version that will pan around an entire big room. And, and uh, they sell light bulbs now and, and all kinds of other stuff. You know, I like their stuff, and I've generally given them good reviews. Um, but, uh, you know, I do question the, the privacy angle. Now, I, I've heard a lot of people uh, who are well-respected in security circles say it really checks out, totally awesome. Um, and you got all this free cloud storage and all this. So, I mean, you know, I guess it's great. Um, I, I will tell you, I can't keep any of them plugged up in my house. Whenever I set them up, my wife will just turn around and unplug it. Uh, <laughs> so, and that tells you something too, right? Um, uh, you know, the, the, but the great camera is while I'm on vacation. But yeah, pe- people buy, and I'm increasingly less trusting of this stuff. Uh, I keep my Alexas. Uh, muted by default. I, I may just get rid of them entirely. But now that all that being said, you know, um, I really couldn't imagine my life. I mean, I can imagine my life without home automation. I mean, I would I wouldn't just die without it. But it makes things just so much easier if you take the time and set it up. You know, I'll give you an example. the The one scene I, you know, the one automation I use the most is is my good night scene, and. and and what it does, so we have a two-story house. Uh, the bedrooms are upstairs. So when we uh, come upstairs at night, you know, I tell my watch, you know, good night, and it just turns all the downstairs lights off, and it turns on uh, our ha- the first floor of our house is somewhat underground, so we have to run a dehumidifier, and so it turns the dehumidifier on to run overnight, and it does all that with one command either to my watch or to my phone. And it's, and that's just incredible. And, you know, it's one of those things, until you start installing this stuff and start using this stuff, you don't realize what a pain in the butt it is to to turn things on and off. Like, oh, you know, they like to say, oh, it's as easy as turning on a light switch. Um, I know people right now who are listening to this, they're going to be laughing about this because I sound like the laziest jerk in the entire world. But really, like... The next time you're getting ready for bed and you're going around the house, is this on? Is this off? You know, just you know, just think about like how much time you spend every day just going around your house and and flipping switches. When you know you could just tell your phone or your watch to do it for you, and it's just done. Oh, and the front door is locked too. That's another thing I have in this automation. If you so, trust the front door to stay locked. Yeah, um, I'm going to tell, tell you a little trick with that. So one of the problems I had, uh, I have an August door lock. Um, I'm not too worried about cyber criminals around here. I live in rural Tennessee, okay? The the tech sophistication level isn't super high. Um, I'm sure someone, and if someone wanted to get in, it'd be a lot easier just to break the window and unlock the door, right? The old-fashioned way. Um, so I'm not worried about it from that front, but the problem was, uh, of course, down here it's humid. Doors swell in the summer, and so I couldn't get to latch consistently. Like, there's a lot of doors around here, in this part of the country that you have to push in on and then latch. Well, I, I dealt with this for way longer than I should have, and one day it dawned on me. I always have a keep a Leatherman multi tool on me. It has a file in it, so I just pulled that out, filed down the uh, what they call the strike plate in there right. that that covers the little hole, and I just I spent probably 20 minutes just filing that thing. Um, and and got it down far enough where the um, the bolt no longer caught on it, and now it works perfectly. So that's a little tip, a little low tech, high tech tip for you there. Yeah, but what what if someday the door jam shifts a little bit, 
and you say goodnight to your watch and the lock tries to lock and doesn't lock. Oh, you get an error message if that happens. Ah, okay. And typically I check it first anyway, uh, just out of habit. But you know, <laughs> it's a nice little bit of insurance to have. Yeah. Well, we got time. For, we're running out of time, and so we have time for just one more subject before we close. And I wanted to ask you about iPad OS. You've included that in your latest book. Mm-hmm. I haven't had a lot of time to dwell on iPad OS lately. Can you give us a sort of a thumbnail overview of what's cool and what we can look forward to in iPad OS 13? So I, I think probably the two biggest things that are specific to iPad OS are the what Apple's calling desktop class Safari. Uh, I wouldn't quite call it desktop class, but what that means is that there, you can load complex web apps um, from uh, Safari and iPad. Like, for instance, Google Docs, which used to be de- desktop only. Um, the web app now works on the iPad, at least for now, until Google probably breaks it. But um, like Squarespace, the Squarespace web app, for managing a website, uh, lots of things like that that um, didn't work so well on mobile or didn't work at all on mobile before are now more or less usable. There are some uh, quirks. There are uh, some things that are going to have to smooth out over time. But I I think Apple's done a tremendous job of translating a lot of things. Like, for instance, like the on-hover element in CSS, they actually figured out how to make that work on a touchscreen which, which is impressive in and of itself. Uh, the other big thing for the iPad is uh, the windowing system has been, uh, it hasn't been overhauled, but it's been tweaked. So now um, sp- there's some improvements to split screen. Uh, the defaults make a lot more sense. Uh, like when you split a window now, it's evenly split 50-50. It's not like 70-30 or whatever it is in iOS 12. Um, you can uh, slide over. You can now switch between multiple slide over apps. Um, so it's, it's a few little things, uh, but it adds up. Now there are some things in iOS 13 more broadly that also apply to iPad OS that make the iPad a little bit more compelling, um, as a real computing platform. Uh, for instance, there's now mouse support. It's, it's technically an accessibility feature. It's a little funky, um, but it's, it's usable. So you can now, and I've seen people do this. You can now set up an iPad on a desk. Uh, especially if we're still on the newer iPad Pros, and you can hook it up to a USB-C hub, connect it to a monitor. You know, if you have a monitor that supports that, you can connect a keyboard and mouse to it, and you can you can use your iPad at your desk. Uh, another thing it supports now is external storage. So you can plug in, uh, at least in theory, you can plug in a thumb drive or a USB hard drive. Uh, the reality is if you have a... Uh, lightning, a device with lightning instead of USB-C, which is probably 99% of the iOS, iPadOS users out there, you have to either have a powered hub or you have to um, have one of the USB 3. Apple sells two USB uh, uh, adapters for lightning. Uh, Get the USB 3 and not the USB 2 because it has a lightning pass-through that will power those um, those kinds of accessories that lightning can't uh, that the iPhone or iPad itself can't otherwise uh, power. Another nice thing about the Files app in iOS 13 is that it can, it can connect to 
SMB file shares. So you can turn on file sharing on your Mac mm-hmm. and put, put some things in that folder and you can access it from files. The bad thing is, as far as I know, and this this might change, there may be something I missed, but developers can't access files directly from that yet for from the files app for every goofy reason. I've had a lot of people ask me, like, hey, can I just put things, can I put music on a thumb drive and play it? I'm like, well, you can, but you're stuck to the files app's media controls. Um, the alternative being you can use something like VLC and copy those files into the VLC application itself, um, which is probably not what you want. You know, if you're wanting, you know, it really comes down to, and forgive me if I seem a little cynical here, it really comes down to Apple wants you to spend more on iPhone or iPad storage, and they don't really want you expanding it. Um, Because I can't think of another good reason why this is a limitation. But I, I would love to be proven wrong. I'm hoping to see apps developed for iOS and iPad OS 13 that can access those media files uh, stored on external storage. Um, it'd be a little crazy if that w- wasn't allowed. Um, you know what so I'm thinking, just, Josh? Yes, sir. I'm thinking that this all is leading towards uh, a desktop iPad, like the uh, Microsoft Surface Studio, a 15 or 17-inch iPad on a cool Apple aluminum stand, not a thousand dollars, mind you, but a cool aluminum stand propping up your iPad, your 15 inch iPad on the desk. And you've got storage and you've got a mouse and you've got another display. The, here's something I heard after last year's WWDC from people who were there. And I don't know how true it is, but it kind of rings true to me. The thing I've heard is that Apple's where they want to take things next is a device that's not quite a Mac and not quite an iPad. Mm-hmm. Like imagine, <laughs> yeah, you've heard this too, right? No, so, but I'm, uh, I know where you're going. Right. And so it would have like the back end and the general capabilities of a Mac and the front end of an iPad. And <laughs> based on, it was interesting because after, after I was told this, I noticed that Intel and a lot of other companies were showing off dual screen tablets. Like suddenly they started flooding, like, look, we can make a dual screen tablet. I'm like, that's interesting. So my thought is that this thing will probably be some sort of dual screen tablet running uh, maybe a new OS. I mean, it, it could just be iPad OS. That could be part of why Apple spun oh, it please, off. Oh, please, not another OS. <laughs> <laughs> we have enough already. Yeah, I mean, for real. Um, oh, I'm, I'm sure the developers at Apple probably feel m- way more in the same way. Um, so then that's just kind of my general thought about where Apple will take this, some sort of dual screen tablet. Uh, you know, maybe it'll be something like, uh, like a folding display. Not that the technology is anywhere close to there, but you know, just imagine an iPad and people, people have conceptualized this before, like an iPad, you can fold in two and, and use the bottom as a keyboard or something. You know, that's probably where it's eventually heading. Okay. Well, we are out of time now. This has been fascinating. Thanks for sharing with me and uh, philosophizing and speculating and all that good stuff. It's always a joy to have you on the show. Thanks for being on Background Mode. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. Uh, uh, You can find my articles on tidbits.com. You can buy my books, including iOS 13 and iPadOS 13 at techcontrolbooks.com. And if you're really brave, you can follow me uh, at Twitter at jcenters, J-C-E-N-T-E-R-S. Cool.
Well, folks, you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode with John Marchalero and Josh Centers. We will be back next week. Thank you.